Welcome to the Oxford Human Rights Festival. I'm Victoria Greenwood. And I'm Lucy Dick. The festival theme for 2021 is disruption, which could not be more pertinent in these pandemic times. As we try to make sense of what is going on in the world around us, the We Need You podcast series will investigate, with a special guest, how misinformation and disinformation is fed through our media and social media, and question who is in control of our daily diet of propaganda. This episode on the We Need You podcast, we ask our special guest, Belinda Goldsmith, Editor-in-Chief of the Thomson Reuters Foundation, to make sense of the overload. Belinda is a tour de force journalist who has worked all over the world in leading roles and now runs an award-winning global team of journalists and freelancers covering human rights and socio-economic justice. Energetically and passionately, she and her team ensure humanitarian stories get reported and that the forgotten can be heard. Belinda, welcome to the We Need You podcast and thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to be speaking with you. You're most welcome. Great to be here, Lucy and Victoria. So to start with, well, every day in our lives, really, and particularly addictively during crisis, we turn to the media to inform and to guide us. Yet so much information is politically biased or it's untrue. As a journalist, how do you keep a cool head in all of this? And how do you hold on to a shared perception of reality and truth? That's a really good question. It is such a great time to ask this as well, because in the past year, we've seen a few events in the world that have really brought this to the fore on misinformation and disinformation, with some disastrous consequences, I might add, as well. And this has been a trend that's been going on for quite a long time that we have seen, and we've seen it particularly on social media. When I started off in journalism many, many years ago, and I'm not going to tell you how long it makes me sound completely ancient, many years ago, working on local newspapers, you would come to the desk and he would have a letter in which he'd cut out clippings from newspapers and stuck it together with conspiracy theories and all sorts of things and hand over the letter at the front desk and we'd get it and say, oh, that's some old Jake, is it? And it would be his letter of the week. Now, of course, on social media, anybody can go out there with conspiracy theories. Anybody can go out there with some sort of idea that is not necessarily grounded in any facts or truth whatsoever. And as journalists, it's our job, as it always was, to find out the facts, represent the facts and tell people what the truth is, what really is going on. And this year, that's what we've had to do more than ever with COVID, with protests in the US. We've really had to do that. And it's so important. We have seen this has driven a desire, increasing desire for people to pay for reputable journalism. We've seen a whole shift away, and we have seen, as you know, over the recent years, we've seen a complete collapse in the media industry with newspapers, magazines, websites folding. Yeah. But increasingly, we're seeing more people are willing to pay for organizations or media outlets they know are producing good, factual, accurate, reliable information. That's that is something that's a plus for us in this. Definitely. I mean, that's very interesting because you're absolutely right. And that's something we'll come back to at the end is where we can where we can find those sources as well for people. But equally, um, many journalists are also under huge pressure um, to find stories that support and even fabricate to fit with political gain. For example, anti-immigration is a hot topic. As a humanitarian journalist, how do you reconcile with this side of your profession? Well, you have to recognise as well in journalism that some organisations, media outlets, be it online sites, be it newspapers, magazines, they have an agenda. 
just because they're journalists doesn't mean that they are going to be representing the truth and both sides in the same balanced way. And you don't always have to. If you go out and you buy the Daily Mail or you go out and you buy the Guardian or you go out and you buy the Times, you really know what political agenda you're buying into. And those newspapers or those media sites, they will have a certain language that is used that backs up what their views are. And you're buying into that. So there's very few organisations that actually say they are completely unbiased, impartial and independent. Now, you know, the BBC has come under a lot of flack for this in recent years about its, its partiality. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. I've worked for Reuters now for 27 years. Makes me sound even older. And we stand by what we call it the company's trust principles, which is fair, accurate, impartial journalism. And so we do try to make sure that we are completely impartial. But I'm frequently asked, how can you be impartial on any particular issue? For example, I cover women's rights a lot, LGBT plus rights, trafficking and slavery. Trafficking and slavery, a prime example, it's something we cover. It's a very important topic. It's in the headlines all the time now, trafficking and slavery. We don't put forward the idea that trafficking and slavery is good. So already we're starting from a standpoint where we are saying trafficking and slavery is bad. So is that lacking partiality? Is that lacking independence? And anytime you're writing about it, you are thinking of that. On LGBT plus rights, again, we don't start from the point that LGBT plus rights are bad. So some people would accuse us of already having an agenda, already lacking independence on issues issue okay. like that. And also in women's rights. In this country, women's rights might be seen as a given. They're not in some countries around the world. And there's a long list of countries where women's rights are not seen as a given. And they would see our coverage as completely lacking balance because they do not buy into the standpoint or the beginning point where we start our stories. Absolutely. And, and I think that point on how different countries um, view different issues, particularly, you know, issues like violence against women, um, LGBTI issues as well, it can vary and can be very politically sensitive. So as an effective gatekeeper, what do you really have to be aware of? Well, what you always try to do is make sure you're putting both sides in a story. And you might not like the views of that one side you're putting, but it's your job as a journalist to do that. You need to give everyone in that story the right to comment. Now, I'm not saying that means you give people the right to comment when they are making defamatory statements or inciting violence. I'm certainly not backing that in the slightest. What you're trying to put is reasoned voices with an argument on both sides. And that's important to do. And you can get hammered for doing that. Um, and there are certain topics that are just their red flags to people. And if you put both sides, people get very annoyed with you. And we have seen, as you know, in the past year or two, the cancel culture has come up increasingly when yeah. people do not want both sides and arguments put forward. Yeah. But as journalists, what you're trying to do is present people with the facts in the most balanced, accurate way as you possibly can and let them make their minds up. Let them decide what they think. And that's what we try to do. Very, very interesting statement. And it um, leads actually really on to what I was going to ask you. I have seen that you're very active on Twitter. You've got over 4,600 followers. And if it's okay to say, you use it as a platform to showcase your work. So a lot of topics you discuss are controversial, such as abortion laws. So do you ever receive comments from the public as a negative response to these articles and posts? And if so, how do you deal with them? Frequently. <laughs> That's a, and as I say on social media, you put yourself up for that. You know, you try to with my Twitter feed. I'm very careful with all of my social media that I'm not being opinionated. I'm putting forward the stories that we've written. I'm not out there with a particularly strong personal view on issues. I will highlight our stories, which are balanced and will give both sides of the argument. 
I'm very careful to do that. But yes, you do get hammered. And I, I, I'll be hammered over women's rights, over trans rights. In the past, it used to be climate change. People have now accepted that climate change is happening. You know, you no longer have to have a climate denier in your stories, which you used to have in the past. That's no longer needed. But there are certain touch point issues that you know you're going to get blasted. And there's certain, I have a team of 50 journalists around the world and certain of my journalists, they are always, always in the firing line. And I have to make sure I do everything I possibly can to protect them from death threats online, threats of physical abuse online. You really have to make sure that you're giving your staff the tools to be able to deal with that because it's very scary. With um, this, and um, you were saying with abuse online and death threats as such, something so violent and aggressive, how do you feel with that, with the risk to personal safety? And how do you deal with that for your team members as well? Well, we actually, funny enough, we've been talking today about it, we have training for it. So we have people externally who are coming in to help train my team on social media safety rules. When it gets to a stage when it's death threats, we will go to the police and we will report the people who are giving them death threats. And that is then logged with the police. and The police will go and investigate if necessary. It's not just in the UK, it's in many countries. In India, particularly, I had some problems last year when we did a story that was seen as anti-nationalist. Now, anti-nationalist in India is a real red flag, you know, so a couple of my journalists were seen as writing anti-nationalist stories. And actually, they had to then have security guards at home for a couple of days because an angry mob arrived outside our office in Delhi. We have to be really careful on these. You're always taking precautions. And usually, you know, though, you know, the issues that are going to flare up, you know, the issues that are going to lead to some sort of threats or threat of violence or abuse online. And even if it's a threat of abuse online, you think, oh, it's only online. It is really horrid to have to go through that. And no one should have to, a journalist should not have to go through that sort of awful abuse for reporting what is fair, accurate and true. Wow. And you don't want to fall into the camp that you give in then. You don't say, OK, right, we're not going to cover that. You're fine. We won't cover you in future. We won't cover these issues because that's what people want you to do. Yes, that's part of, I suppose that's part of why they're doing that and they're taking it to those extreme lengths. I was just wondering, with running a global newsroom, you can see how the COVID response is reported to the rest of the world. Taking the UK, for example, how much does the internal presentation of the facts differ from the view of the rest of the world looking in on it? From the UK to the rest of the world, I think what the UK, the lot of the language they've used is we're the best, we're the fastest, we're the greatest. (laughs) It's very funny language to use when you're dealing with a, with a pandemic that's killing people. This isn't, a, it's not a national competition. What we're trying to do is make sure people are safe. So this language has been really peculiar, I think, for people outside of the UK, when they're seeing the UK's numbers are awful. And we're saying, we're the best, we're the fastest. You think, well, you've got the worst numbers, you know? So people inter- internationally, I think, are a little bit confused by that. Other countries have different dilemmas. You know, the misinformation, disinformation on COVID has been... Um, extreme, you know, from the sort of things like drink bleach. Why? Mm-hmm. To eat garlic. And there's been some extraordinary myths out there on um, how you can possibly stop COVID or keep yourself safe. I think journalists' job, a lot of it, is to go out to try and stop those sorts of misinformation reports that can be very, very dangerous for people. We had this as well, actually, during the Ebola crisis, which is a comparable thing, but it was a horrific disease, Ebola, you know. Mm. Um, and we had journalists going out to report on it. And what we were finding was a lot of the people in the villages, particularly badly affected by Ebola, were blaming foreigners. They said foreigners are bringing Ebola to our villages. Wow. And so they were, they were then using all different myths as well about disinformation about Ebola to stop any foreigners from going into their village. 
all of the aid groups and all of the international organizations trying to go to help people work and stop Ebola, they were being attacked because the misinformation had reached that degree where they blamed foreigners for spreading Ebola. And it got to say, we did a story on it actually, we did a few stories about this, the fact that the security aspect of Ebola was stopping, helping to, to get the right information out there. And after our story, the US Embassy stepped in and they provided security for aid organizations to go to these villages to tell people what really was the story behind Ebola and how to stop it spreading. Gosh, well, I mean, that's a massive amount of extra measures and precautions that you have to put in place to try and keep the line of information, I suppose, clean and as impartial as you possibly can. That makes me think of a story I heard about that refugees trying to get across the channel um, were bringing COVID into Kent as well. And you just see how that sort of exaggeration and misinformation can just take hold as well and be useful to inform the narrative. On the narrative in this country, the actual idea of building and better and what have you, that seems to be quite a British thing. And, and <laughs> I wonder, wonder how the world looks on at the Britishness at this stage, probably with, with sort of a few raised eyebrows. On the, the subject of narrative, and obviously we've, we've talked about speech and talked about abuse online as well. And incitement is something that creates enormous disagreement among defenders of freedom of expression. And obviously it's very sort of, politically hot at the moment and also of great concern for us all in democracy do you think that there should be more regulations to stop the spread of fake news or do you feel that stops freedom of speech it's a really difficult balance to have isn't it because we saw we have seen of course now that trump has been taken off social media we're accused of inciting violence etc and since that, i have been bombarded by emails from other people around the world saying the social media platforms going to act against him. Why aren't they acting against and giving me a list of other people they want to act against? So you open the floodgates, you know, Trump had to be taken off clearly, but maybe it's too late already so they knew this was coming. But the social media, they do have in all of their, in all of their rules and regulations, they already have the right to take people off for inciting violence. What we have seen during the pandemic as well is we haven't seen an increased real spike online in gender violence and abuse of women online. And you yeah. question, well, why aren't you acting quicker on that as well? Then the, the rules are there. The rules are there that they have the right to do so, but somehow it seems to be very slow in the process to get around to doing it. Yes, I agree. And I wonder whether or not the social media companies will start to um, take greater responsibility and a duty of care. There is talk about them being considered more as publishers rather than platform providers. And whether or not that's going to increased accountability, whether we're just at the start of a long journey because of all the international laws, the different regulations in different countries, and I suppose the, you know, the nature of the internet crossing borders in the way that it does and how you regulate it. So it's difficult. Really... It means you want Mark Zuckerberg being the person who decides what you can read and you can't read. Well, you know, so... and how much, you know, who, who has the power then? Exactly. So it is a difficult way to move forward. And, and how do you think that will unfold? I think it's going to be an ongoing discussion to try and get that right sort of balance because you need to have freedom of speech, but then you do, you cannot have people inciting violence and hatred online. It's something we've witnessed a lot of, I suppose, especially over the last year. Leading on from the accountability, a good governance through accountability and transparency is vital. Do you think you can exercise autonomy at the foundation by being a part of a much wider global corporate group that might at times have conflicting interests and shareholder demands? 
We're very lucky because we have a made by church and state mentality at the Thomson Reuters Foundation, also at Reuters. So our owners have no say in what editorial does. And I think it's really important oh, okay. to have that church-state divide because otherwise you're under pressure to sort of not do that story because it's going to offend the owner, et cetera. So to have really fair, accurate, impartial journalism, you can't have that. You've got to have total editorial independence. And that's the only way to do it. We're lucky, but many other organisations don't. But as I say, with journalism, be it a website, a newspaper, a TV station, they're not always aiming for total accuracy and impartiality. No. There is an agenda there in the first place. Yeah, very true. Moving on to human rights and getting human rights issues into the mainstream media, I noticed that you tweeted a story about PlayStation five um the launch getting more coverage than 10 humanitarian crises combined which was completely shocking very shocking um, you know that challenge to get human rights issues into mainstream media particularly during a pandemic you would think that now is an opportunity to leverage that greater shared common humanity that we must all be experiencing through being in the pandemic and the loss of security and freedom that particularly in the west has been taken for granted what are your hopes? It's really depressing when you see that, isn't it? But I wasn't that surprised. I mean, everyone was talking at Christmas about the PlayStation 5 and the new Xbox, weren't they? So yeah. those were the two big things that everyone was interested in. And humanitarian crisis, I haven't worked in humanitarian news for quite a number of years now. What we struggle to do and we're always trying to do is find new ways to get people engaged with a topic. You might remember a few years ago, we had boat after boat sinking in the med and you get 200 people dead, 300 people. Everybody just switched off. They completely switched off until that there was that photograph of that little boy, Ilan Kurdi, he was, who yeah. died on that beach. And suddenly everyone saw that picture and everyone realized these are people. These aren't just numbers. And it was like a real wake up call to everybody just to get involved again and try and do something about it. But people get very bored with one topic. Coronavirus is one of those as well. People get very bored because it's happening in every country. And they, people tend to just look at the UK. They don't look elsewhere. Other countries are getting far worse than the livelihoods of people, their income of people. They've got no jobs, no money. They have absolutely nothing. So, so when I saw that PlayStation 5 and it was more coverage, I think 26% more coverage than 10 of the biggest humanitarian crises of the year. You try to get someone to read a story about Yemen. It is very difficult. People just switch off. So you're always trying to find a way to engage people. And usually the best way to engage people is through... Somebody yes. you can relate to, like Eileen Kurdi, a woman you can relate to, a teenager you can relate to, somebody who's going through that situation. You think, I know someone just like that who lives down the road who's the same age. So you're always trying to find a way to get people engaged. And the other way to get people engaged as well is to come up with some sort of solutions. Not that there's always a solution to a humanitarian crisis by any means, but people get fed up thinking, this is so gloomy, I'm powerless. I can't do anything about this. But if there is some way to engage people, they feel they can help in some way, that can also help without it being an appeal. Because that's a charity's work, not a journalist's work. Sometimes this can be social enterprises working on a certain topic. It can be charities working on a certain topic. It can be a new form of technology that's helping people. Something like that, you can show this is something that's scalable and can help people in this situation. And it gives people a little bit more ability to feel they can help. Belinda, I've got a question for you then, leading on from this. How could the standard member of society, such as myself, not a journalist, got very few followers on Instagram, Twitter and everything, how can I help with this? And 
increase my friends and my following to look at human rights and keep it to the forefront of their mind make them realize what's going on I try and do my best by reposting stuff from choose love and organizations I feel are a bit like the company you work for that don't are unbiased and they are just factual how do you think we can do that I think there's talking to people about it. it's just like the PlayStation 5, you know, more coverage than 10 humanitarian crises. It's something you'll get people engaged with, really, because it's quite a quirk. It was a clever, clever idea to do that. I thought you got your attention, you thought, wow, that's a really clickable headline that, and you're going to mm. read that story. It's finding that sort of way that the, those sort of interesting, quirky angles on things, you could say, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Because otherwise, it just, people just sound like you're banging on about something, don't they? They're just going to ignore you, your friends, you know. But you want to try and get them engaged. And something like the situation in Yemen or the situation in Tigray in Ethiopia, try to talk to people and say, did you see the story about that? And did you see that story? And just try and talk to people, I think. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for that insight on that. So that leading on from that, actually, what do you think we can do to protect ourselves against misinformation? What advice can you give people who want to make sure that their news and social media feeds are reliable? What do we need to stay away from? As I always say to people, Wikipedia is not a source. <laughs> and I say that to come people come to your work experience with the copy paste of Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a source. Social media is not a source. You know, for social media, it's a great place to see things people talk about what's going on. Doesn't mean it's right. Go off and find the facts. You know, you can read now so much on social media and it's completely wrong. Go to a reputable organization who's got the facts on it. And we've had this a lot on COVID, the numbers of COVID, the numbers of deaths that people are banding around saying this has happened, that's happened. It's quite easy to go and get the right data and have a look at it. It means a little bit of digging, but go and find the right facts. And Wikipedia, social media, think twice. Even with a blue tick on it, doesn't mean it's right. There was a typical example of this, where it was um, Rupert Murdoch's wife, Wendy Deng, on Twitter, had a blue tick, the works, and she'd said something, I can't remember what it was now. And it just got, we got, publicised everywhere it was a fake account they managed to do it somehow I don't know how they do it the blue wow, team but they okay. did it you know you've got to be so careful on social media and all things people say on social media as well it's not them writing their accounts you know you don't think all those celebrities are actually writing that they've got a whole team of people writing it for them although I do think Donald Trump writes his own but other people <laughs> have got a whole team of people writing for them so don't believe what's on social media some stuff yep but other stuff go and check it if it seems too good to be true genuinely it is Amazing. Okay, thank you for that advice. How can people actually find you and the work of the Thomson Reuters Foundation? We're on social media, of course. Thomson Reuters Foundation underscore stories, TRF underscore stories on Twitter. We're on Facebook, Thomson Reuters Foundation, and we have a website, news.trust.org as well. All of our stories go on there, but all of our stories also go on the Reuters news service, which means we go out to one billion people every day. That's why we like to look at our stories and see the impact our stories have had. Our stories will go out and it can lead to legislative changes, it can lead to funding changes, it can lead to just changes that improve people's lives on the ground. We don't set out to change because that's not what journalism is, is that's advocacy or campaigning. We set out to tell really good stories that other people aren't telling and that just in itself can lead to some sort of change. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Finally, Belinda, tell us what are you hopeful for? This year? Ahead. Yeah. This this year, well, I think we've got that light at the end of the tunnel now with the vaccine, haven't we? And we're so yeah. lucky. In this country, it's being rolled Incredibly out. Incredibly lucky, yeah. In many other countries, this is not going to be rolled out for a long time. And I would love to see vaccine equality. We've seen already today, there's a story about there's some club in London where you can pay 25 grand. They'll fly you somewhere in the world to jump the queue and get your vaccine. I would love to see everybody have the same access and the same ability 
be protected against COVID in the next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. Belinda, thank you so much. We've got, I mean, we could talk all, all evening, to be <laughs> honest, um, but I'm hugely grateful for your time and insight and helping us to understand our world of misinformation. And it certainly is a relief to know that you and your team are ensuring that there is impartial journalism out there that we can rely on. Thank you very much, Victoria, and to Lucy, and best of luck with the scenes. Thank you very Thank much. You Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to We Need You, which has been produced as part of the 19th Oxford Human Rights Festival. We have asked our guests to give our listeners alternative news sources that can be found online. These include Tortoise, Le Monde Diplomatique, The New Humanitarian, Byline Times, and the New York Times. Please feel free to drop us a message at oxhrf at brooks.ac.uk for any questions, or alternatively contact us on one of our social media outlets.